Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gellif. Julia, what are we going to laugh about? I'm sorry, talk about today. Well, Massimo, as your Freudian slip suggests, we are today going to focus on humor, specifically the psychology and philosophy of humor. Where does it come from? Um, why do we find certain things funny and other things not so much? And so on. Um, so listen so, to this. Yeah. So Plato and Aplatip was walking to a bar. Oh, here we go. <laughs> the bartender gives the philosopher a quizzical look. And Plato says, what can I say? It was dark in the cave. Uh, I hope we have a laugh track Benny can edit in. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we, we need a laugh track for, for this thing. Anyway, so that is just one of many um, jokes, of course, about philosophy. That, is, uh, that comes from a book by the same title, Plato and Plato was Walking to a Bar by Thomas Cathcart and Daniel Klein. It's actually a good book. It's, um, it explores all the major areas of philosophy essentially by jokes, by, by doing one after another. Of course, the one that... I just told you was the one that concludes the book, um, and it refers to to Plato's. Save the best for last. Yeah, yes, absolutely. It um, and of course it refers to to the famous uh, uh, you know allegory of the cave by by Plato. But actually, I mean, the, the serious thing, uh, so to speak, about humor and philosophy is that um, a number of people have suggested that there are some interesting similarities between the two, and even so, uh, despite that. Uh, very few philosophers have actually written about um, humor or have it, have taken humor seriously, so to speak. So I, I wanted, for instance, to get your sort of feedback, your opinion about this. This, this is a list of, of um, uh, similarities between stand-up comedy and philosophy. And this is due to John Morial, who wrote the entry for philosophy and humor in the Standard Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I highly recommend, both the entry and the philosophy in general, uh, the encyclopedia in general. So here's the seven... Um, analogy, seven, seven similarities, according to Morel, between stand-up comedy and, and uh, philosophy. So, number one, they are conversational in nature, obviously, for the, the case of the stand-up comedy. And, uh, you know, philosophy can be done and often uh, has been done, especially in the past, in dialogue form or in dialogical form. Uh, or it certainly can be taught, is taught in a dialogical form, in a, in a sort of conversational uh, format. Uh, they both reflect on familiar, familiar experiences, especially puzzling ones. So both philosophy, philosophical investigations, and uh, stand-up comedy start out by looking at something that's familiar, but from a different perspective, from an unusual perspective. They approach the subject matter with questions. Um, you know, again, both philosophy and stand-up comedy. Number four, they step back emotionally, looking at the issue at issues in a detached manner. So the idea, of course, is that on the one hand, the goal is to make other people laugh at something, but you, you do so by taking these sort of detached third-person um, you know, uh, uh, approach to things. And in the case of the philosopher, of course, the, the point is not to laugh, but to make people think about stuff. Number five, they deploy critical thinking. 
uh, particularly they don't accept anything on authority. They so they question the authority. In fact, the most the, the common wisdom or the authority of others on a particular on a particular topic. Number six, they pay careful attention to language. Um, I mean, they they both stand up comedy and philosophy hinge on a really good and interesting understanding and, and take on language. And then number seven, they give pleasure because they allow us to consider things in unusual ways. Now, that's, that's Morel's uh, list of the similarities between stand-up comedy and philosophy. I would add my own entry, number eight. They both piss off people who are not into them. <laughs> I think well, that's, that can be safe, uh, said safely. So, so what, 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 yeah. you know, when I was going through that list, what, what, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Well, uh, a number of things. One, one thing that struck me is that it reminds me of uh, a similarity that I had noticed between stand-up comedy or just humor in general and um, scientific explanation, which I think ah. has like the relevant things in common with philosophy here. Mm-hmm. So a lot of humor, uh, as you know, and as I think we'll talk about in a bit, there are a lot of different theories of how humor works. Like what are the common themes underlying the things that we find funny? And one of the most popular explanations is that humor has to do with incongruity, um, right. like things being other than what you expected them to be. Um, and in particular, there's this kind of uh, resolution of incongruity. Right. So there's there's an old joke you might know from Groucho Marx. Where he says, uh, I just shot an elephant in my pajamas. <laughs> what he was doing in my pajamas, I'll never know. I'll never know. Right. <laughs> and the process of hearing that joke uh, involves a like uh, implied frame for Groucho Marx's first sentence. So the the... Natural way to interpret that is that he was wearing his pajamas, Groucho Marx, that is. And while wearing his pajamas, he shot an elephant. And then there's this moment of confusion when you hear the phrase, what he was doing in my pajamas, which doesn't make sense given the frame that you had been operating under. And then there's this sort of grinding of gears in your brain and a shift. You could call it a paradigm shift where you realize your original model of the situation was wrong and now you shift models and suddenly everything falls into place and makes sense. And that process uh, evokes humor or evokes laughter, but is also very satisfying. And this reminded me uh, when I read about the incongruity resolution theory of humor of how science progresses. Yeah. Uh, not always, but like a typical way that science progresses, which, as you probably know, the philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, talked about um, uh, in his structure of scientific revolutions. So there's one paradigm used in uh, to explain a certain kind of phenomena. Um, and then gradually anomalies start to crop up. Like, you know, our civilization was operating under the geocentric model, and then scientists started to notice anomalies, like the orbit that Mars uh, traveled in didn't make sense under the right. geocentric model's um, circular orbits around the Earth. Or, you know, assumption that the planets orbited circularly around the Earth. Um, And then gradually, as those anomalies cropped up, a new paradigm of heliocentrism was introduced under which those anomalies made sense. So if Mars and the Earth are both orbiting the sun and the Earth is is in a tighter orbit, then the little kink that we see in Mars's path across our night sky is exactly what we would expect to see under that new paradigm. So there's a satisfying resolution um, that we get from shifting paradigms, which really looks a lot like what we see in in our experience of humor. And and I think in other kinds of art as well. Like if you look at... um, tonal shifts in music modulation Mm -hmm. each musical key signature contains a different subset of sharps and flats and naturals on the scale and if you use a note that's not in that key the the key that you had been in 
The result is dissonance, which is sort of tense or ugly. It feels like something is off. Um, but since every note is shared by different key signatures, you can use those shared notes as a pivot, like a pivot point to transition to another key. And the resulting effect feels like the introduction of tension or confusion and then resolution. And it's huh. very satisfying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, when I, you were talking about the analogy with science and the differences or between, you know, sort of the analogy between science, philosophy and humor, uh, it, it occurred to me that the major difference um, that one might think of is the time for the resolution of the incongruity, which in the case of jokes is measured in seconds. In the right. case of science is probably measured in decades. decades in the case yes. of philosophy, it's, it's measured in centuries. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> now you mentioned the incongruity theory. That's interesting because that, that's one of the major three historical accounts of, um, of humor. Uh, the other two are called the superiority theory and the relief theory. Maybe we'll have time to get back to those. But but in terms of the incongruity theory, which is the idea that we laugh when we perceive you know an incongruity, something that sort of violate uh, our mental expectations. Uh, a number of philosophers, I- even though I said earlier that few philosophers actually written about, have actually written about humor, a number of philosophers have essentially endorsed and elaborated on the incongruity theory before it became part of sort of you know modern psychological research. Um, for instance, Kant, Schopenhauer, and Kierkegaard um, among, uh, were among the, the early proponents of this theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is actually, the, from what I understand, the currently dominant account of, of humor in, uh, um, in psychology. Now, um, as you were pointing out, you know, there, there's an inter- interesting distinction, the standard distinction in comedy between the setup and the punchline. And that's the, that's the idea that, you know, that's the thing that gives you the incongruity. You mentioned um, uh, Groucho Marx. Uh, the author of the standard encyclopedia, the Stanford Encyclopedia, uh, quotes May West, who said, um, "Marriage is a great institution, but I'm not ready for an institution." And it's the same kind of idea, right? You start thinking in one direction, and then you meaning a social institution, and then of course you start, you know, you you, you change ninety degrees, and, and you're now you're brought uh, the image that is brought to your mind is that of a prison. Right. So. Now, the idea, however, is that so incongruity is not enough because we can perceive, uh, you know, some critics of the, of the uh, incongruity theory pointed out that incongruity is not enough to account. It certainly is a part of uh, what it means to laugh and, you know, hu- have humor. But it's not the whole thing. It can't be the whole thing because, of course, we can perceive incongruities in situations that, we don't, that don't lead to laughter um, and, in fact, generate, uh, on the contrary, sort of fear or disgust. Um, so there has to be something about enjoying the incongruity that has to be a component, right? So it's, it's not right. just incongruity in general, but it's a kind of incongruity we enjoy. Um, right. right. So the incongruity theory is one of the, as you said, the classic theories of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the newer, and I've, I've heard it called hottest, theories about humor is kind of a violation on the incongruity theory. It's called the benign violation theory. Okay. So uh, according to this theory, a violation is anything that threatens your beliefs about how the world should be. So it seems unsettling or wrong in some sense. Um, From an evolutionary perspective, the uh, researchers speculate that violations were threats to physical well-being, like, you know, attacks or or, um, violations of personal space, etc., and that as we evolve, those expanded to include threats to psychological well-being or cultural norms um, or linguistic norms or moral norms. Um, so for something to count as humorous, it has to not only be a violation, but it also needs to be perceived as benign, hence benign violation theory. So it has to seem safe or acceptable in some way. Um, and the researchers list three ways that a violation can seem benign to people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
either it can, uh, like, the, the listener can be committed to the violated norm, like, if you're sexist or if you endorse sort of traditionally sexist attitudes about men and women, right. then a violation of gender equality is going to seem funny to you because it's not really a violation of your norm. It's a violation of someone else's norm. Right. But that may, um, be, may turn out to be very non-funny to somebody else. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's the typical um, thing with uh, ethnic jokes, for instance, uh, and, you know, and gender-related jokes. That is, they work or don't work <laughs> only on the, on, you know, mostly on the, on the basis of you know, if, if your audience actually finds that kind of humor acceptable or not. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, the second way it can be benign is if it conforms to a different norm. Like, that's basically uh, the incongruity resolution type stuff we were talking about. Like, one meaning of a phrase doesn't make sense, but the other meaning does, so it's resolved. And then the third way it can be benign is with psychological distance. So mm, right. you may have heard the expression, comedy is tragedy plus time. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, or, you know, comedy could be uh, tragedy plus personal distance. Uh, Mel Brooks once said that... Uh, uh, tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall in a manhole and die. <laughs> so if you don't really care about the person, then exactly. uh, it's easier to find the violation of them benign. Exactly. Um, so the yeah, researchers it's, it's interesting who mentioned... this have studied yeah. um, thousands and thousands of jokes and uh, and tweaked them such that they didn't fit into the benign violation theory, and indeed people found them less funny. So yeah. I want to uh, go back, and if, if we have time, to the to the um, contrast between uh, comedy and tragedy. But this seems yeah. to me like just a, 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 as good a time as, as any to introduce my next joke uh, from, uh, from oh, the goody. collection. <laughs> from, the, from the Plato and Platypus walk into a bar collection. Um, so as I said, that book divides actually philosoph- philosophically themed jokes uh, according to topic. And so it's, it's a chapter on logic, one on metaphysics, one on ethics, you know, that sort of, and so on and so forth. So this joke is about, uh, it's in the logic chapter, and it's about inference to the best explanation. Um, and it features Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes. So they, they are on a camping trip, and in the middle of the night, Holmes wakes up and gives Dr. Watson a nudge. Watson, he says, look up in the sky and tell me what you see. I see millions of stars, Holmes, says Watson. And what do you conclude from that, Watson? Watson thinks for a moment. It's one of Sherlock Holmes' usual challenges. Well, he says, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Theologically, I see that God is all-powerful and we're all small and insignificant. What does it tell you, Holmes? Watson, idiot. Someone stole our tent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was a significant improvement over the last one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll come up with a couple he's more. Just, he's just gotten used to the paradigm of Holmes expecting <laughs> exactly. brilliant deductions from him and hasn't yet had time to shift to the paradigm of seeing very obvious things in front of his face. Right. So let's go back for a second then to this idea that you brought up about you know, the, the contrast between comedy and tragedy, uh, which of course is, goes all the way back to in, in the Western tradition to, to the ancient Greeks who were masters at, at both. Um, and the, the basic idea is that um, when, when you contrast the two is that uh, tragedy obviously embodies a sort of a serious approach to life situations, right? And it's based on what are called warrior uh, virtues, uh, things like courage and obedience to authority and, you know, the willingness to die for a cause or for, you know, if the reason is, is, is uh, for a good reason. Comedy, on the other hand, 
uh, focuses in, on the non-dramatic approach, which is based, as we were saying earlier, on sort of critical thinking, you know, distrust of authority, ingenuity, adapt- adaptability. Uh, you, you never, you know, the hero doesn't die. In fact, it f- does everything that's possible in his, in his, in his power to avoid um, uh, dying in, in a comedic um, setting. Also, tragedy focuses on individuals, and usually those individuals are men, although not always. But while on the other hand, comedy, uh, comedy's focus is on groups, families, friends, you know, co-workers, things like that. And women are actually much more featured in, uh, you know, prom- prominently featured in comedy, not just today, but in, you know, throughout the, the history. So there's some really interesting Wait, sorry, distinction. Sorry, you mean that comedies, by comedies are focused on groups, you mean that comedic plays or TV shows or movies tend to be about a group? Like yeah, that's right. They tend to be about social interactions. As opposed to tragedies, which sometimes they are, but often tragedies you know, really focus on one major character, one figure, and everything else mm-hmm. is sort of the social, back, the social background is, in fact, background. In the case of comedies, on the other hand, um, all the way back to you know, Aristophanes, uh, the focus is the group. Uh, it's, it's rarely just one individual. Um, it's, uh, it's the interactions between the groups. Of course, there's, there's dominant individuals, there's dominant characters, and, and lesser characters, just like in anything. Uh, but um, but the idea that has, that has been proposed is that one of the major distinctions between these two is, on the one hand, as I said, the values that they seem to embody, and on the other hand, uh, the focus that switches from sort of a very individualistic one to a very social uh, component. And there's also that bit about men versus a little more varied. In, in men tend to be the, the, the protagonists in tragedies. While it, the, the the number of characters and the constitution, you know, the makeup of the characters is much more varied uh, when co- within comedies. But you're not you don't buy it. <laughs> uh, you're thinking. Well, I'm okay. not sure if I buy it. I'm like trying to go over <clears throat> examples in my head, but I'm wondering if there's an explanation that's proposed for for this alleged difference. So I'm not aware of any causal explanation or a particularly interesting sort of causal model. It, it, it may very well be that the uh, that, that what happens, at least in the Western tradition, is that the ancient Greeks set up the the pattern uh, with the contrast between comedy and, and um, tragedy the way they did, and then pretty much everybody for the following 2,500 years, um, fo- uh, you know, kept kept doing uh, the same sort of of, of thing. Now um, there are exceptions, of course. So if you get to the 20th century and you get to sort of the absurdist uh, uh, theater, for instance, that's, that's a whole different uh, beast. And of course, I'm sure there have been you know, ex- exceptions along the, along the lines, but it seems like that's one possibility. It would be interesting in this, in this uh, respect. I don't, I don't know much about different traditions, uh, but it would be interesting to compare Western uh, theater, for instance, in comedy and tragedy to uh, uh, Chinese or, or Indian or Japanese. When, when I was in uh, Japan, uh, visiting, I did go to see a um, uh, you know, local performance of a, a kabuki um, theater, and uh, it was very different. I mean, it was hard to imagine uh, how it would fit very, very clearly into the, the the Western canon. It was essentially a tragedy, what I saw, but it had comedic um, uh, aspects to it, and it certainly didn't seem to fit the, the, the what I'm used to as the normal way of thinking about comedy and tragedy. So I don't, I don't know. It would be interesting to see somebody who is familiar uh, with the history of different traditions uh, and see if the parallel and the, and the contrast between the two actually holds. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of difference, cross-cultural um, and intertemporal difference in what counts as funny, which makes sense since it's so dependent on cultural and social norms and like hitting that right 
balance between violating the norm but also remaining benign and right. you know having just the right psychological distance from the violation such that it counts as funny um when you were talking about the uh, relationship between comedy and tragedy i was reminded of uh this past week the halloween costumes that have been making the rounds online i don't know if you've seen some of them yep. uh for example there's a costume several costumes in fact some variation on the theme of sexy Ebola containment suit. <laughs> um, yep. And they are just as absurd as you might imagine. Yep. Um, which They also you know, wouldn't work in practice, by the way. I don't know if you've seen the, the pictures. They're not but super it, practical. No, this is no. true. They leave a little too much open. Out. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is just sort of the latest and maybe most absurd in the long history of taking... Uh, grotesque or horrifying things and turning them into humorous costumes. I mean, you could argue that the witch costumes or, you know, devil costumes do kind of a similar thing. It's just we have much more psychological distance from the times when witches were burned or the times when people actually feared that, you know, the devil would possess them. Um, Right. Right. And that's, so, that, that goes back to your early comment about, you know, has it been enough time, basically, uh, to right. turn some of a tragedy into a comedy? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I saw a pretty interesting study, which I haven't seen corroborated anywhere, so take it with a grain of salt. But some humor researchers were looking at tweets about Hurricane Sandy, mm-hmm. um, and they compiled a bunch of these tweets, like tweets that were attempted to be jokes. Um, and they compiled them over the course of, you know, the day after the hurricane struck. struck um, all the way until months later, and then oh, mixed them up and gave them to participants and asked them to rate how funny. Um, oh wait, no, I got it backwards. They asked participants uh, at the time to rate how funny the tweets at that time were. And 15 days after the hurricane struck, people found the tweets least funny, and then 36 days later they found it most funny, and uh-huh. nine, 99 days later they found the tweets least funny. So their ah, conclusion from this is that the passage of about a month creates a sweet spot in which poking fun at sadness is uh, not too sharp or painful because we've got some distance, but not trite and, you know, out of date. Right. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm assuming that, that the specific amount of time will probably vary with the tragedy uh, and, uh, and the person sense, right, yeah. and the personal import of it. Well, I wanted to briefly mention a couple of the other theories of humor that have been proposed, which are not currently uh, entertained by, by mainstream either philosophy or, or science, but they're kind of interesting in, the, in themselves because they, they give you an, an idea of how think people have actually thought about uh, this. So one is the so-called superiority theory. This one was proposed, among others, by Roger Scruton, um, and uh, articulated, actually, by Roger Scruton in more recent times. But uh, it's the idea that we laugh because we feel superior to the object of our laughter, uh, even when it is it, uh, previous incarnations of our own selves. So when we laugh at ourselves, it's, it's sort of as we, we laugh at a, at, a, at a previous version of it. However, this, this theory was actually already criticized back in the 1750s, believe it or not, uh, for instance, by Francis Hutchinson, who pointed out that uh, the feeling of superiority is neither necessary nor sufficient for, for laughter. There, you know, there are all sorts of situations where we laugh without feeling superior, and vice versa. There are others where we may feel superior, but we experience sorry, something like pity instead of, of laughter. Um, so all of these are, again, discussed in John Morial's great um, article in the Standard, uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And, and Morial also gets to the third theory, also abandoned. This, I think it's, this is even more 
um, interesting and, and um, essentially laughable by modern times, really. Uh, and that's the account called the relief theory, which was proposed in the 1709 by uh, Lord um, Shaftesbury. And he basically says the laughter is the result of sort of a physiological relief of nerves, that, that, that it's, it's a release of energy uh, that is pent up in, in, in the nerves. And um, lots of other people have, have suggested similar you know, variations on the same theme, including John Dewey and most, most famously Freud. Um, and of course, according to Freud, most of that energy was, guess what, coming from? Id. Yeah, well, more specifically, it was, you know, uh, oh, up. sexuality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Repressed sexuality. <laughs> I forgot that's always the answer. <laughs> exactly. Now, the thing is, of course, no, no modern scholar actually takes the sort of the relief theory. Uh, seriously, as we were saying earlier, it's the incongruity theory that is one of the sort of dominant paradigms, even though with the variations that, for instance, you were, um, uh, you, you brought up um, earlier. So it seems like it's time to 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 uh, look at another one of my collection of jokes from the Plato oh, and Platypus, right? I was wondering <laughs> from the book Plato and the Platypus walking into a bar. Now this one is about um, uh, is inspired by Zeno's paradox, so it's still about logic, and it's a it's a very brief exchange between a salesman and um, and a housewife, and the salesman says, um, "Ma'am, this vacuum cleaner will cut your work in half," and the housewife says, "Terrific! Give me two of them." <laughs> of course, exploiting the idea that the second one would cut into in, in, the working further into half. So. It reminds me a little bit of a story my parents tell about me when I was a toddler. Um, I was trying to reach something on a shelf, probably cookies, knowing me. Uh-huh. And I went and got a stool and stood on it to try to reach the cookies and I couldn't. So I went and I got a second school, stool. And I placed it next to the first stool and stood back on the first stool and was perplexed that I still couldn't reach the cookie. <laughs> well, <laughs> the basic maybe idea... this was just two-year-old Julia's elaborate attempt at absurdist humor. Right. I'd like to give myself the benefit of the doubt. The basic idea was there, I suppose. But, um, but it, you know, there was the vertical versus horizontal dimension thing missing. Right. I, I, was, I mentioned earlier that few philosophers, comparatively speaking, have actually written about, about humor. But one of the exceptions kind of surprisingly, is Thomas Aquinas, you know, the theologian. Huh. Yeah. He doesn't strike me as a mirth maker. Right, uh, exactly. But he was a, a more interesting person than most people seem to give him credit these days. Um, anyway, Aquinas was actually building on, on some observations by Aristotle, who, who also was one of the few who wrote about comedy in German. He wrote an entire book about, on comedy. Um, and... Uh, Basically, Aquinas was one of the early commentators to make a connection between humor and play. Um, and in, this is interesting because it's a, the, uh, um, it's a very modern idea. I mean, the, this idea that um, humor is a kind of social play analogous to uh, the way in which, you know, sort of playing as kids uh, or as other animals do is right. a way of, of practicing for things like, you know, interacting socially, um, fighting um, to some extent, right. you know, um, getting away from a predator or whatever, you know, from, from a danger. Uh, that, that kind of play we have in common with other primates and with other mammals. The kind of social play that, that leads to humor, on the other hand, presumably is uniquely human. Um, and, um, but, but Aquinas was one of the first ones to point out that it has, in fact, both sort of personal and social benefits. You know, we feel better about it when we do it. We, we, we feel this kind of, you know, uh, good about, about laughing. But we also have social benefits. There are a number of things that 
humor can do socially, uh, it allows the place to, to, to sort of push the boundaries um, of our social interactions, you know, breaking conventions, uh, uh, regulating conversation. Uh, and we can do that, however, in a safe manner because, you know, it's, a, it's understood that this is humor. It's, it's a joke. I'm not to be taken seriously when I do this kind of thing, right? Right. Um, so in the advantage of, of thinking about, uh, you know, the Stanford alt article that I mentioned earlier points out that there are several advantages that modern psychologists think um, uh, come with sort of a theory of that looks at humor as a kind of play. Uh, among the advantages is that, first of all, this, this theory makes more, more readily sense of the facial expressions that accompany uh, humor. And of, as I said, of the fact that it is an inherently, uh, you know, social phenomenon. For instance, this is an interesting statistics. We're 30 times more likely to laugh when we're in company than when we're alone, even to the same kind of stimulus, you know, the same kind of joke and so on. Is that, is that because if one or two people in the large crowd laugh, then that... Yeah, that's, know, that's, that's a good question. Like a yawn or? That's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's, it may v be a combination of that and on the fact that, um, again, it, it, as, a, as an activity is inherently social, so we feel safe and secure um, and encouraged, you know, in reacting in a certain way. Um, but, but it's an interesting observation. You know, 30 times, is, it's, a lot of, it's, a lot of, it's a big difference. Um, now, Can I just ask yeah. why humor is a subject for philosophers like I, i've totally <laughs> I've, I've totally come around to the fact that there are a bunch of things that philosophers can very productively clarify uh like important points that philosophers can help us reach clarity about mm -hmm. but the the field that i'm or one of the fields i'm still skeptical um of philosophy contributing to is the field of why do humans behave the way they do like right. that just seems like I, I can see a certain philosophical background being useful in maybe generating p promising hypotheses about why humans behave the way they do. But right. it seems like that's just sort of the beginning. And after that, you just need to go out and collect data and test theories yeah, and yeah, you yeah. Know, no, incorporate I, I, evolutionary psychology and all that stuff. Oh, well, yes. Uh, there well, is that, I suppose. But, um, well, we, we've done an entire episode on evolutionary psychology. But no, I think you're right. I mean, you, you, you're substantially right in the, in the basic observation. And I actually don't think that there's a contradiction uh, between that and philosophers being interested in humor in this sense. So um, on the one hand, think about it this way. First of all, until the late 19th century, psychology, which is the branch of science that mostly is concerned with the study of humor these days, was in fact philosophy. Uh, there was no distinction. I mean, all, the, all these uh, basic theories of humor that we, we've, we've talked about uh, are, have philosophical roots, but they go, those roots go to, back into a period where there was essentially no distinction between uh, philosophy and psychology. So in the same way, in way in which, you know, there was very little, if any, distinction between natural philosophy and science, you know, in the 16th and 17th century. So when Kant was writing, let's say, about humor, or where, when Shaftesbury was writing about humor, they were writing, you know, we, we, we think of them today as philosophers, but they were writing, wearing multiple hats, uh, one of which uh, today would be, recon uh, you know, recognized as sort of a psychological, uh, you know, the hat of a psychologist. So, so first, the, the first answer, uh, part of the, of the quest of the answer is um, there is an historical root for it. And this historical root actually come to fairly recent times, much more recent for the, the, the split between philosophy and psychology is much more recent than the split between philosophy and natural science. And which is why it's harder to recognize the, dif the distinction sometimes, even in, in recent, somewhat recent writings by philosophers. So that's one thing. The other part of the answer is um, 
it's my own um and and actually it goes to this idea that i've been developing in a book that i finally finished writing for university of chicago press and it's currently under review and so hopefully when it comes out we'll we'll do an episode on it um and that the that's the my book on the on the um on the idea of, con- of progress in philosophy and how how philosophy changes over time as a discipline and uh, one of the ideas that I put forth in that book, which is not in, not at all controversial actually among um, philosophers, is that one of the ways, not the only, but one of the ways in which uh, philosophy changes over time is that at some point, as you, as you pointed out a minute ago, a certain question or a certain uh, kind of sort of uh, issue uh, or, or field becomes mature enough for empirical results to be relevant. And when that, is possi- when that becomes possible, of course, the field becomes... Uh, increasingly independent from philosophy, and it becomes its own uh, area of inquiry, and it, and then we call it a science, right? But as soon as we do that, hand it over, right? Like like handing a mustard jar over to someone to open, <laughs> saying, "Here, I, I loosened it for you." That's right. That, that's that's actually not a bad analogy. <laughs> uh, you know, I kind of you know the idea is that f- the philosophers. Uh, historically have been uh, attempting sort of to clarify issues conceptually and then when, when at a point where, where um, before, before any kind of empirical uh, uh, you know, relevance uh, to relevant input could be actually brought to, to bear. But now once it, the empirical input is possible and it becomes substantive, substantive, then the field does spin off on its own and becomes its own uh, separate discipline. Uh, we're still seeing th- stuff like that happening under our very nose. I mean, as I said, psychology just happened, you know, about a century, more, a little more than a century ago. Uh, economics happened even more recently. That also was a branch. I mean, you know, we we think of um, um, of economics, of course, as, as social science at the very least. Right. But um, but the beginning in, of of economics goes back straight into philosophy. Um, you, you know, uh, David Hume was doing was was writing essays that today we would consider. Um, uh, and of course, Adam Smith, his friend Adam Smith, Adam Smith, which we considered, you know, the father of, of economics, uh, he was he thought of himself as a philosopher for sure. He was a, he was a friend of David Hume. But um, this, this kind of thing is still happening today. I mean, philosophy of mind is is slowly but surely mutating and moving more and more into sort of cognitive science, neurobiology, and things like that. I mean, until. Very few years ago, there was nothing coming out of neurobiology about consciousness because we didn't have the tools uh, to approach the issue. But my point is that once that, that happens, you know, this this part is on what I told you just up to this point. It's, uh, you know, sort of the, the idea of a spinoff is is entirely uncontroversial in the history of philosophy. But my suggestion is that then we're not done with that yet because remember, philosophy, of course, is in, mostly in the business of sort of conceptual analysis and clarification and that sort of stuff, and not obviously in the business of empirical research because we've got science for that. But what happens once you have a science that develops independently from philosophy, now you can do philosophy of whatever the conceptual issues with which that science deals with. I mean, the, the entire field of philosophy of science is like that, right? And it's not just philosophy of science, it's philosophy, it's more specifically, it's philosophy of biology, there's philosophy of physics, in fact, even more specifically than that, there's philosophy of quantum mechanics and so on and so forth. That's because any, every science is never an entirely or, or, uh, or solely a uh, empirical matter or a simple, straightforward connection between theories and, and empiricism. It, there's always going to be sort of borderline conceptual issues that need to be clarified, 
um, and those become, you know, those, those are the kinds of things that uh, the bread and butter of philosophers. So to go back to your original question about humor, I think that originally and up until fairly recently, uh, philosophers were interested in humor because there was no distinction between, you know, no fundamental distinction between psychology and uh, philosophy. Now that there is, uh, philosophers are interested in, um, in essentially doing commentary and, and, and sort of conceptual analysis of what the scientists are doing about, about humor. And one of the areas where it's controversial, of course, uh, where this analysis becomes controversial is precisely when it comes down to evolutionary psychological explanations um, in psychology in general, not just about humor. Um, because, as we've talked about in the past, evolutionary psychology does have does suffer from severe sort of epistemic limitations and, and, and sometimes a severe uh, or at least a questionable uh, partial decoupling between the evidence and the claims that are made on the basis of that evidence. That's that sort of stuff. So right. in that sense, it's fair. Yeah, fair the, enough, right? The reason that I was invoking evolutionary psychology was not as uh, as the source of definitive explanations of humor no, right, uh, or, right. or like origin stories of humor where we can just stop there and decide that, you know, we have an evo-psych explanation, therefore we're done. I was thinking of it more as a source of promising hypotheses that can then be tested. Like, right. for example, uh, if you have a evolutionary explanation for why uh, men, males would want to show off their intelligence in order to attract females willing to mate with them, then that might suggest the hypothesis that um, men... I don't know, just come up with a hypothesis out of thin air. Men outside of... <laughs> Which is what evolutionary psychologists do usually, yes. funnier than men in a committed relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something like that. Which actually reminds me of another topic I wanted to hit before we wrap up, which is the relationship between gender and humor. Um, as many of our listeners probably know, Christopher Hitchens made a splash or got into hot water or whatever water-related metaphor you like um, <laughs> with his suggestion that women aren't funny. Right. Um, and... I looked into the research on this, um, partly out of an irritation with the way that people were responding to Hitchens. Uh, specifically, they were like calling him dumb and crazy and wrong. And by like their argument was, hey, look at this or that female comedian who is very funny, which didn't really address his claim that women were on average much less funny than men. Like just because you can find one or two counterexamples, it doesn't really disprove his point, which is not to say he's correct. It's just to say that's not really a good way to argue against him. Um, right. I mean, I so was going to say some of the research. Right. Yeah. I was going to say that. I mean, you're right. Uh, certainly an uh, anecdotal counterexamples doesn't contradict the claim. But then then again, it's fair to ask, where does the claim uh, come from begin to begin with. Yeah, if it, that's if true. It's, he wasn't exactly making a rigorous claim. Exactly. I mean, if, if his claim is also anecdotal, then, you know, fine. Then that's, that's fair enough to respond with anecdotes. Fair, but anyway, fair, right. so what does the research say? Uh, so the research is complicated. Um, the original research in like the 60s or 70s did support Hitchens's claim, um, showing that men were more likely than women to enjoy jokes and cartoons, etc., um, but the problem, as people pointed out in later decades, was that a lot of those studies were using sexist jokes like, <laughs> why did the woman cross the road? Right. Never mind that. What was she doing out of the kitchen? Right. <laughs> so, so it wasn't really wasn't necessarily that women are less funny or have less of a sense of humor than men, just that they don't necessarily ex appreciate jokes at their own expense, um, which seems like it should have occurred to the researchers, but you that know, would be that would be like saying, 2020. yeah, that would be like claiming that, um, let's say, Polish people are, don't have a sense of humor because they don't laugh at they Polish don't appreciate jokes. Polish jokes, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so there's been more research since then, um, which has tended to tended to support the notion that men are more likely to produce jokes that blind testers rate as funny. 
Um, but the, the important caveat is that men also produce more jokes, like when given a half hour to generate jokes, oh, et cetera, um, which explains much or maybe all, at least much of the variation in like the you know maximum joke quality for men versus women. Uh, so this is, I think, consistent with the evolutionary um, and maybe cultural uh, story that men are rewarded more for being funny and thus have more incentive to try hard, um, which is sort of. I don't know, consistent with my anecdotal evidence. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, um, I can definitely buy into the reward uh, theory. I'm much less sure about the evolutionary story because, you know, again, we don't really have access to the place to scene and how the, the comedy clubs in the place to scene, I think they have not survived in the fossil record. That's, <laughs> the, that's the problem. So should we cl- uh, conclude with one more quip from my list of, uh, of uh, jokes? This how one is- could I say no? <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Um, thank you for indulging me. So this is actually not from the book that I mentioned, which is... Um, Plato and, uh, and uh, Platypus walk into a bar. It is actually from the, um, the Stanford entry by Morial. Uh, because at some point, John Morial uh, gets into the idea that, of course, we can joke about also serious matters, uh, sometimes even about our own death, uh, which you would think you know, normally people don't joke about. And the, one example is this uh, quote that apparently is from Oscar Wilde on his deathbed. And he said, this wallpaper is atrocious. One of us has to go. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good way to <laughs> approach your final minutes I, I, I think respect mad respect <laughs> all right well we're all out of time so i will wrap up the section of the podcast and we'll move on to the rationally speaking picks Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a book. It's called Scientists Greater Than Einstein, uh, The Biggest Lifesavers of the 20th Century. And the little, like, uh, banner on the cover of the book screams, over 1.6 billion lives saved, uh, which is sort (laughs) of a tongue-in-cheek way of expressing the point of the book, which is... Uh, the authors felt like the scientists who get celebrated are indeed great in the sense of being geniuses and uh, like making valuable discoveries about the structure of the universe. But uh, their fame doesn't really correlate with the impact that they had on quality of life and, um, and on number of lives saved by their discoveries. So what the authors tried to do is go throughout history and figure out which scientists' discoveries Uh, had the biggest impact in terms of lives saved. So it's kind of interesting to just look at uh, the process of doing that calculation. Like how it's kind of complicated. How do you estimate the impact of a discovery? So they talk about their method, but then it's also interesting to just read the stories of the lives and personalities and, um, and like the process of coming up with these discoveries. Uh, And it's interesting also to see how some discoveries that seem mundane, like, uh, discovering new kinds of fertilizer, for example, can have such a huge outsized impact in terms of lives saved. Billions and billions of lives. Yeah, well, 1.6, if that counts as billions and billions. <laughs> yeah, all right. We'll get, we'll get there to multiple billions. Yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not yet at McDonald's levels. Of right, movie, right. <laughs> yeah, so I highly recommend it. It's fun to read, and it's, it's an unusual um, and I think valuable way of uh, appreciating science. Splendid. So my pick uh, is a recent article in the New York Times by a former uh, guest of us, 
Brendan Nayan. Mm. And um, so Brandon and I met again uh, recently because we were both at a conference on denialism, uh, of all places, at uh, Clark University in Massachusetts. And, um, and that was actually the day that this article came, up, uh, came out. So um, actually, interesting listeners can go to my uh, Scancia Salon um, magazine, webzine, and, find, and uh, look up the article that I wrote about the conference the, um, on denialism. Um, because it's, a, it's just an interesting topic in general, and there was a lot of stuff going on there. I hope that they're going to publish the proceedings soon. But um, one of the things that came out from that conference was this discussion about, you know, we're beginning to assume, so this is a, a narrative now, that um, the modern information uh, era allows us to live in essentially informational cocoon, cocoons, that, that we, we tend to... Uh, select news and news outlets and social networks and so on and so forth uh, that uh, only reinforce you know, our own sort of echo chamber of political views, social views, and so on and so forth. And apparently a lot of that sort of assumption comes from a, uh, a poll that was published by the Pew Research Center uh, some time ago where you know, it looks like there's a you know, disproportionate uh, amount of um, self-reported news that comes from uh, either liberal or very conservative outlets. But as it turns out, you know, people started doing some research and they figure out, well, wait a minute, but the Pew um, surveys, of course, about self-report, uh, reporting, and self-reporting is subject to a lot of limitations, including the fact that somebody might actually sh- want to show a badge um, uh, to the interviewer uh, sort of of his own or her own ideological position. So if, you know, you might actually say that you get most of your news from Fox or from SM, MSNBC, mm. while in fact you actually don't. So uh, a number of studies have started looking at it, not from the point of view of self-reported um, you know, uh, information, but, um, but from looking at actual traffic on the web and what kind of uh, what, what individual users do in social networks or what kind of things uh, of, a, of news outlet they actually check. And it turns out that the news are actually much better uh, than we thought. Uh, only a very, very tiny percentage of people get get the majority of their news from uh, very ideologically biased um, outlets. That's that's the the first finding. The majority of us apparently get their news from a small number of sort of med- middle middle of the road mi- mainstream, mostly um, uh, newspapers such as uh, you know the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so on. Or um, uh, evening news networks like ABC and you know NBC and so on and so forth, and also in terms of social uh, networks, that's the, the picture there is also actually a little better than than uh, we we have we have thought in in uh, in recent uh, times. Because as it turns out, uh, the more time people spend on social networks, uh, anything from Twitter, Facebook, and so on, uh, the more actually they are likely to get exposed. Uh, or to expose themselves on purpose to different opinions, if nothing, if nothing, just because they want to read about them and you know be, be ready to talk about it or that sort of stuff. But there is much more crosstalk and much more sort of cross exposure uh, than it would have uh, th- than you would have thought if um, based on the on the on the early surveys. So I highly recommend it. This is an article by Brandon Nihan. Uh, it's called Americans Don't Live in Information Cocoons, and it was published in the New York Times on uh, October 24th, 2014. Huh. That's both 
encouraging and discouraging the latter <laughs> because it seemed before that in order to solve the problem of polarization we just got to had to get people to read you know news outside of their bubble but it turns out they're already doing that and we're still in this pickle so yes that's a good point i don't actually know how to feel about that oh uh, thanks for that a note of optimist optimism <laughs> my friend <laughs> no thank you uh all right we're all out of time so we wait how do i end this Oh, yeah, this concludes. Okay, Benny, edit that out. I'll start again. So this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.